Our scripture for today is lengthy. I ask you to bear with me. It is Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 6, verses 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their, for and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, 
and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. for taking on that passage. Well, good morning. Thus saith the Lord. If you want to get somebody's attention uh, before you say something, this is a good way to preface your message. Last week after our service with our guest preacher, Dane Kramer, I was eating tacos at my house and we were chatting and and I was told him I was interested in a video he had made recently entitled, Stop Saying the Lord Told Me. And I was interested because, I'll be honest, whenever I hear these words, I just get a little bit twitchy. The Lord told me, the Lord laid on my heart. And, and Dane's point in his, his blog post and his video was not that this doesn't happen, not that God doesn't speak to each other, doesn't speak through his people, but Dane's point was, for such a serious task to speak on behalf of God, we often hear this phrase tossed around like candy at a parade. But think about the power of just these few words. For example, I can come up to any one of you and say, you know, I've been thinking, and I really think that it would be great for you to give your testimony on a Sunday this summer. And you could say to me, it's never going to happen. Right? I'm not a preacher. I'm not a public speaker. It's never going to happen. But I could also come up to you and say, you know, the Lord's been talking to me. And you need to share your testimony one Sunday morning this summer. And you could still say no, but think about it now. Who are you saying no to? You're saying no to God himself. These are powerful words, and these are the the words that we hear in our passage today that Moses begins. Let's just recap briefly. Moses has been up on the mountain where he's had this dramatic encounter with God in the burning bush. He's received this commission to now go tell Pharaoh to bring Yahweh's people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And if we remember that Moses is initially pretty resistant to this commission up on the mountain. Then we had this, two weeks ago, we looked at this bizarre encounter where, where Moses is actually almost killed by the Lord. And now he finally arrives at this meeting with Pharaoh. And he begins with the words, Thus says the Lord. The NIV, the, the version that I used and was, it was shown, actually Pat read a different one that says it. The NIV says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And that's fine, but I think that takes some of the punch out of it. I like the way the ESV and the NRSV translates it, Thus says the Lord. Because that's powerful language. That's the language of the prophets of old. That's the language that says, hey, Pharaoh, pay attention. This is, sit up straight, because you're about to get a direct line from the Lord himself. I mean, first of all, who is this guy, Moses, that struts up to Pharaoh like this? I mean, in my mind, this is the guy who must have eaten his Wheaties and had a stiff cup of coffee for breakfast, because this is bold language. 
Like, this does not sound like the Moses up on the mountain. This is, that Moses was reticent, he was faint-hearted, he was slow of speech and tongue. He's the one that said, who am I to go to Pharaoh? This Moses looks fearless. He walks up to the most powerful man in the land, and he says, thus says the Lord. And if we remember, Moses has gotten off to a bit of a rocky start on this mission. He's been tasked with, but it looks at this point like Moses is finding his stride. For example, we saw in our passage before this one that Moses had had all these fears and doubts about when he spoke to the Israelites. Would they believe him? But we saw in that passage, they certainly did. They heard the message from the Lord. They had no objections. They had no questions. We read that the Israelites bowed down and began to worship. So Moses has one success under his belt. And now Moses goes up to Pharaoh and he whips out his secret weapon. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Nothing. Pharaoh doesn't blink. Who are you talking about, Moses? I have no idea who this Lord is. And I can assure you, I will not let these people go. You can just see Pharaoh's response just, it just reeks of sarcasm and arrogance. And you can kind of imagine, in my mind, uh, Moses' face, this confidence that he had built up. He had talked himself up for this. And you can just see that confidence melt away. You can just see that the doubts and the insecurities just come rush back over Moses' So Moses kind of changes things up the second time. He drops the thus said the Lord, and he, he tries to spell it out a bit more clearly for Pharaoh. The God of the Hebrews, this is the God I'm talking about. This is the God who's going to, who were to take a journey out in the wilderness. And, and think about it, Pharaoh. If we don't do this, God may strike us down with the plague or the sword. In other words, Mer, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, if you're not going to listen to the Lord, at least listen to your best interests. Because if we can't go on this journey out into the wilderness, a bunch of us may die by pestilence and the sword. And think about it, that's not going to be good for any of us. It's not good for you. You, use your, you lose your labor, and it's certainly not good for us. So if you're not going to listen to the word of the Lord, would you listen to your best interest? Can you see uh, in Moses his confidence is just starting to ebb away? Because this powerful word of the Lord that, that Moses breaks out, not only does it fail to move Pharaoh in any way, but it actually makes the situation worse. Because rather than allowing the Israelites to go out on this trip to the wilderness, Pharaoh actually then doubles down on this brutal exploitation of the Israelites. After his conversation with Moses and Aaron, he, he passes down the order to his own slave drivers to no longer supply them with straw. So back then, if you're making bricks, you, straw would have been one of the... the, 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 the it would have been mixed in with the clay and would have acted as a binder for those bricks. And so the Israelites now still have to make the same number of bricks, but they don't have this, this resource they need of straw. They're going to have to go out and get the straw themselves. And so this oppressive work becomes that much more oppressive. And look at how, look at how this message uh, is passed down to the Israelites. So Pharaoh goes up to his own his own people under him, and he, he, the slave drivers and the overseers, and he passes down this message. And then they, when they go to the Israelites, they say this in verse 10. This is what Pharaoh says. But again, I don't think this is the best translation, because guess what I think is a better translation? Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you any more straw. Right? Does this language sound familiar? Notice what happened. Notice what happens. We've had two words come down, but notice what happened when the word of Pharaoh comes down. It comes down from his messengers to the people of Israel. 
And guess what happens? Moses says jump, and the Israelites jump. Which is very different than the word of the Lord, right? The word of the Lord, we saw a similar trajectory. The word of the Lord comes to Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, passes on that word, and nothing. Which word has more power here? It certainly looks like at this point, the word of Pharaoh has more power. And also it looks like Pharaoh is mocking Yahweh. You know, think about the, the first shots of most duels and most battles are usually of words, their taunts, their threats, their disrespect. And that's what Pharaoh's doing here. Thus saith the Lord, no, 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 thus saith Pharaoh. And we see now in our story that the contest for ultimate authority is on. Maybe think about this in your own life, uh, how this might have played out in your, your workplace. There's perhaps a power struggle happening between two supervisors. And one supervisor has, has, has given one order, and another supervisor has given an order that contradicts that one. And the test becomes, which word prevails? Who's got the real power in the organization? Who can get the people to do what they want? Or maybe, uh, for you parents, maybe you have accidentally put your child in a bad place. Hopefully it's accidentally. Because you give that child an instruction that contradicts the instruction that the other parent has given that child. And then the question becomes, whose word prevails? Thus saith mother or thus saith father? See, Pharaoh's throwing down the gauntlet here. Pharaoh is drawing the battle lines. As Pete Inns points out, the, the true battle in Exodus is not a battle between the Israelites and Pharaoh. It's not even a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. The true battle that we're moving now much closer to is the battle between the God of Israel and Pharaoh. And so what are they battling over? Are they battling over a piece of land? No, the battle is over a people. Who will the Israelites serve? Will the Israelites serve Pharaoh or will the Israelites serve Yahweh? Remember, I, I talked about this the first week. Uh, the Exodus is not about the Israelites being set free just for the sake of being set free. No, the Exodus is about the Israelites being set free from one master, Pharaoh, so that they might serve another master, Yahweh. The Exodus, in, the, in this case, is a transfer of one kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt, to the transfer of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, where Yahweh reigns. In other words, the Israelites are not being freed so they can do their own thing, but so that they can do God's thing. I think about this in our own life. When you and I are rescued from the death, the bonds of death and sin and Satan, through our faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ, we are not freed just to be freed, just to do our own thing. We are free to do God's will. We are saved from one kingdom, the kingdom of the world, a tyrannical kingdom, and we are brought into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, where we come under the sovereign and loving rule of a new Lord, Jesus Christ. And at this point in our story, Pharaoh does not seem very concerned about his adversary, Yahweh. And maybe rightfully so. Because again, whose word seems more powerful at this point? Yahweh's or Pharaoh's? Who's the real boss here? Well, at this point, it sure looks like Pharaoh. By all appearances, this first skirmish in this battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh seems to go to Pharaoh. And not only does it look like that to Pharaoh, it looks like that to the Israelites. Because after Pharaoh doubles down on his brutality, uh, the overseers go to Moses, and, and you can just, we read in the text that Moses and Aaron are waiting for them. And you can just imagine poor Moses as he sees them coming down the road towards him. This is not going to be good. And they begin to say to Moses, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, 
and his official and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. See, Moses had warned about a deadly sword, but the sword does not come from God. The sword is coming from Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the one that seems to be wielding the powerful sword. Things for the Israelites have gone from bad to worse. And for Moses, think about Moses. We started out with Moses. He was this confident, bold man who says, Thus saith the Lord. Now Moses is bewildered. He's despairing. He's dejected. This guy who we saw up on the mountain already struggled with self-confidence. Already has some issues with there. Has been rejected twice. He's been rejected by outsiders, Pharaoh, and he's been rejected by his own people. In other words, you know, Pharaoh's worst fears have materialized. I mean, sorry, Moses' worst fears have materialized. What does he do? What does Moses do? We read in verse 22 that Moses returns to the Lord where he begins to pour out his complaint. Why, Lord? Why have you brought this trouble on your people, on this people? Why, in other words, why in the world did you send me to Pharaoh? This is supposed to be a rescue mission, and you're supposed to be setting your people free, and now they're just that much worse off. Why? We're not Moses, right? We're not, we didn't receive the same call Moses got unless someone just hasn't told me about it. I don't think you've had an encounter with God in a burning bush like Moses. I don't, I don't suspect any of us have had a conversation with God quite like Moses. But think about it for a minute. If we look at the arc of the story of Moses, I think most of us can probably find ourselves in this story. Because we actually do profess, like Moses, that we've been given a word from the Lord. Not a word in a burning bush, but we have been given the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And not only have we been given the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, but we have also been called, like Moses, to be ambassadors to the world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, and he talking about Jesus Christ, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Listen to this next line. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. As if God was making, were making his appeal through us. Just like Moses was made an ambassador to Pharaoh, we too, as followers of Jesus, are ambassadors. We're tasked with a message. So think about it. What's an ambassador? Well, an ambassador is someone who who typically goes on behalf of a country to another country. I mean, take, for an example, if we have an ambassador from the United States to France. That, that, uh, that ambassador does not speak for herself. She doesn't really, doesn't really matter what her opinion is. It doesn't really matter what her political position is. What matters is what is behind her. What is she representing? She stands for something much bigger than herself. And this is, this is the, the metaphor that Paul gives us. He says that you and I are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, you and I, as we leave this place of worship, as we go out into our places of work, into our communities, we are entrusted with a powerful message that because of Jesus Christ, reconciliation with God is possible. Okay? We're not Moses. We're not given Moses' commission, but we are given a commission and a charge. And I would guess that, that most of us can look back at our lives and recognize moments where we felt like Moses at the beginning where we were brimming with confidence in our role as ambassadors for Christ. Maybe, uh, maybe it was after a particularly powerful weekend church retreat. Maybe you, were, you spent this powerful time with other believers and you, you emerged from that retreat with just your flame lit in a new way. Maybe it was after a week of camp growing up. Maybe it was after your own baptism or your own conversion. Maybe much of the time you feel more like Moses on the mountain where you are slow of speech and tongue, where you lack 
confidence of yourself in the message. But you, that time you came off that mound and you had a fire lit within you. And you were ready to tell the world about Jesus Christ and his power. You were ready to, to maybe finally have that conversation with that friend or that loved one about Jesus that you've wanted to have for a while. And you open up your mouth like Moses and nothing. Nothing happens. The person doesn't even blink. Maybe it's just silence. Maybe if it isn't silence, maybe if it's indifference. If not indifference, maybe it's flat-out hostility, sarcasm, derision, rejection. And I don't know about you, but at that moment, you just want to kind of crawl back in your hole. You want to just kind of crawl back in your protective shell, never to pop your head out like that again. What do you do when that happens? What do you do in your role as ambassador of Christ if you put yourself on the line like Moses has done and you are rejected? Well, let me offer you a few thoughts here. First, in those moments, we remind ourselves that we are not the source of the message. I think one of the, the biggest struggles we have as ambassadors of Christ is that we are timid. I know that's my challenge. I think we've all probably run, a, run across people whose problems as ambassadors of Christ is not timidity, but arrogance and brashness. That's a problem, too. But I've been here what, almost four and a half years, and I, I know this congregation. I don't think that's our problem. Like, I don't think Midway's problem is we're, we're just handing out too many offensive religious tracts. We're employing just a few too many manipulative, door-knocking conversion tactics. Or if we're out there proclaiming like we have all the answer. I haven't seen much of that at Midway. I don't think that's our problem. No, I think our problem at, at Midway is we're a lot more like Moses. Who are we to speak for God? Aren't there, other, aren't there other churches who do that a lot better? Like, aren't we better shepherds than evangelists? We're timid. And timidity, as Pete Inns says, is not so much a lack of nerve as a misdirection of focus from God to ourselves. See, what happens in our timidity is that we forget, we become so focused on ourselves rather than God that the emphasis becomes on the messenger rather than the message. Let me give you an example how I experience this myself. Let's say, for example, I step out of my comfort zone and I take a risk and I talk to someone about Jesus. And let's say that doesn't go too well. I don't know about you, but my first instinct is, how did I mess that up? What did I say wrong? And not to say that that might not have happened or I may have needed to do some reflection on that. But the problem is, is the focus goes to myself. The focus goes to the messenger rather than the message. Or maybe say, for example, I, I, I am teaching or I'm preaching. And I think that it's all up to my powers of persuasion. It's all up to my rhetoric. It's all up to the way I've studied the scripture. It's all up to my knowledge. That's what's going to help move the needle. That's a misdirection of focus. See, in both these cases, I'm neglecting the real source of power, the potency the potency does not lie with you or me. The potency lies with the word of the Lord for which we are ambassadors. That's what has the power to change lives. Not you, not me. It's the word of the Lord. So I want to encourage you, as ambassadors of Christ, we got to get over ourselves. we got to realize that we are the messengers, not the message. That's where the power lies. But secondly, we will be rejected. And I, I want to think about what, is our, what happens when we're rejected. 
Well, one of them, I think we should not be surprised. I think sometimes we're a little bit too surprised when we step out and take a chance as ambassadors of Christ that others are not receptive to the message, just like Pharaoh is not receptive to the word of the Lord from Moses. Why is that? Because we live in a rebellious world. We live in a world that would rather listen, uh, that, that rather than listen to the word of the Lord, would rather speak for God like Pharaoh. Like, it is not hard to find people in our word, world who want to speak as if they are God. That's actually fairly, quite fairly easy. What's harder in our world is to find people who are eager to hear a word from the Lord. So I want you, we should not be shocked when, as ambassadors to Christ, our message is rejected. But finally, here's my advice to you. Keep the conversation going. Our response when we act as ambassadors of Christ, when, when God makes his appeal to others to us, is, is, is not to, when that is rejected, is to not respond with anger, is not respond with judgment, it's not to respond with defensiveness, it's not to write that person off, no. A response in the face of rejection is to patiently and lovingly keep the conversation going with them. To keep letting God make his appeal through you. In 2 Peter, we read that the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient. God is persistent. God keeps making appeals. God, as, the, as one English poet once described him, is the hound of heaven. The Jesuit J.F.X. O'Connor writes this, As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. See, God is patiently and doggedly and lovingly pursuing those who do not know him, those who continue to reject him. And we too, as ambassadors, must learn that patience and persistence in the face of rejection. Okay, so here's the, we keep the conversation going with those who reject us. But secondly, we keep the conversation going with God. What do I mean here? Look at Moses. Right? He's been rejected by Pharaoh. He's been rejected by his own people. He's discouraged. He's confused. He's bewildered. Moses got a very clear word from the Lord. He stepped out in faith, acting on that word. But rather than get better, things just get worse. So what does Moses do? Does Moses go off and pout by himself? Does Moses give God the silent treatment? No, Moses takes God to task. Moses returns to the Lord with the question, why? Why, Lord, is this happening? You said you were going to rescue the people? That is not happening. They're in more trouble now than when this all started. Moses is discouraged, he's bewildered, he's confused, he's angry, and he takes the Lord to task. And by doing so, he offers us a gift. Mo Moses offers us a safe place to pour out our discouragement and our confusion, even our anger to God. God get, Moses gives us the example of truth-telling. And in his, in his encounter with God, Moses doesn't go up to God and offer him a bunch of cliches. Moses doesn't say to God, well, you know, I know you would never give me more than I can handle. No, he doesn't say that. He says, why? Why'd you send me with this message when things only get worse? Why are you sitting on the sidelines when your people are in desperate need? Why? See, Moses is asking God some tough questions. Moses is asking God some tough questions about his own personal troubles, his own rejection. But he's also asking bigger questions about the world. Why, God, are you standing by 
while all these people suffer under the horrors of a tyrannical regime, why have you not rescued your people? I don't know about you, but that's been my question all this week as I watched the horror and death and destruction and suffering taking place in Ukraine at the hands of the Russian military. Why, Lord? How long will you stand and watch the death and destruction before you act? There are no simple answers to any of these, either of these questions. But here's what I want you to see. Rather than withdrawing from God, rather than being silent, Moses keeps the conversation going. And Moses gives us an example in our own confusion, in our own heartache, in our own lives, and in the life of the world to keep the conversation going with God. Moses shows us that there's a safe place to pour out our complaints and remind God what God has said he will do. And notice, again, Yahweh doesn't get upset with Moses. Yahweh does not get upset at Moses for taking him to task. No, when he responds to the question of why, when he finally responds, he says the word, now. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now you will see. See, it might look like in the present that the pharaohs of the world, even to the world, that they, their word is more powerful than the word of God. And you and I may find ourselves asking the question, why? Why have you not rescued your people? How long, O oh Lord, are you going to watch the oppression of your people before you act? But there's a day coming when the Lord will say, now. Now you will see what I do to Pharaoh. I'm reminded of the scene in the book of Revelation when there's a scene that John has this vision of these souls that are, have been slaughtered and they're up in heaven and they cry out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, until the, you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long, Lord? How long will you listen to the cries of your people until your justice comes down? That's what they're asking. That's, that's the cry that, that rings out somewhere in heaven and it's the cry that rises up from the rubble of the blood-soaked cities in Ukraine and so many other places in the world where injustice currently reigns, where people cry out, and where the pharaohs of the world that reek with arrogance continue. How long, Lord? How long will the pharaohs of the world be allowed to mock you and taunt you and twist your words? How long until Babylon falls? How long until the reckoning? How long until the day when you say, now? And I'm reminded again later on in Revelation in the chapter 19 in John's vision. He sees at the end of history a rider on a white horse, eyes a flame of fire, clothed in a robe dipped in blood, his name the word of God, of armies of heaven following him, and from his mouth a sword to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of kings and Lord of lords. How long, Lord? How long until that day? Come, Lord Jesus.